WAMU 88.5 at American University in Washington. Welcome to the Kojo Nandi Show, connecting your neighborhood with the world. It's Tech Tuesday. She's been called a digital futurist. Amy Webb has been following tech trends for more than a decade. Each year, she puts out a report on what to watch, both long and short term. Her predictions? You'll soon control your devices with a wave, a blink, or simply using your mind. Your next device will be wearable and will feed you headlines, information about your surroundings, and perhaps monitor your heart rate, too. You'll Uber everything, from your dry cleaning to your groceries, and if that scares you, not to worry, digital security is ramping up, too. So joining us to discuss all of this is the aforementioned Amy Webb, CEO of Web Media Group. It's a digital strategy consulting firm. Amy joins us in the studio. Welcome. Hi, Kojo. If you have questions or comments, I'm sure you do. Give us a call at 800-433-8850. Which tech trends do you predict will be big in the year 2015? Now, Amy, you put out a report each year tracking trends in digital media and technology. You can find that report at our website, kojoshow.org. Can you talk briefly about what you track and how you decided what would be on your tech trends 2015 list? Sure. So uh, for the past decade, my company um, has been looking at emerging technologies and not just the technologies, but the way that we react to the technologies. And, and to me, what I find most compelling um, isn't the, the latest and greatest gadgets, but uh, how those gadgets impact our society. And so the thing that we look at when we make up that report um, you know, we, we take a look at patents throughout the year, and we, look, we talk to researchers and, and people who are working in the development space. But we also observe human behavior. We look at microeconomic changes. Um, we look at education. Uh, you know, we look at the way that people are, are having conversations, and that uh, all sort of gets crunched and helps us determine what are the most important things to look at in the year coming. Glad you mentioned crunched, because I'd like to move on to algorithmic curation how sites decide what we see and what's hidden on, for example, Facebook, a news feed, or what's at the top of your searches. What's going to happen with algorithmic curation in the near future? So, you know, it's interesting. A lot of people in the sort of media and tech space, and, and you obviously know this, you know, what gets shown on Facebook isn't the sum total of what everybody's posting on Facebook, but instead what Facebook via algorithm thinks that you'll be most likely to engage with. And if I can just take a moment to break apart the word algorithm, because it can, you know, we hear it a lot and it can be kind of scary. Sure. Um, you know, an algorithm is really just a, a sort of term of art that describes a process. You put some data in, there's a query, and on the other end you get a, an explanation. So I just wanted to sort of demystify that, that term for folks. So Facebook has been doing this for a while, and it's, it's quite effective. And so one of the things uh, going forward into the next year that we will have to contend with is that there's an awful lot of content everywhere. We are being bombarded with content. And as you will, I'm sure, find out in today's conversation, you're going to be seeing content on more places than just your screen. Um, and so the real question going forward is how do we capture people's attention? Because there's a big difference between publishing something that's interesting or controversial and, and capturing people's enough of our attention, which is constantly on the wane, so that we engage with whatever that is. And so there are algorithms that will be used on social media, but also on some news websites and elsewhere that will help determine what are we most likely to engage with at this moment in time based on what we're doing. Okay. Ambient proximity. What is that and what will it mean for me and for my devices? So there, there are, um, you know, one of the phenomenon of, uh, of our mobile devices is that they do a lot more than make phone calls, obviously, but they are always tracking our location. Our mobile phones know much more about us than, you know, our, our close relatives do. And because they always know where we are, um, they can feed us, locate us in information. Um, they can feed us information, locate us, and, and do, some in, do some interesting things. So in, in the ambient proximity state, um, we're seeing that go a step further, there are devices that are called beacons, 
and uh, they're they're little teeny tiny. Uh, sometimes you can see them, sometimes you can't. Little tiny devices that get stuck um, in, into different places. And for example, if you go into a retailer. Uh, you know, if you go into Trader Joe's, they're not using beacons that I know of. But if you were to walk through Trader Joe's somewhere in uh, in, in the city, uh, you might get a notification to your phone that, I don't know, there's a sale on something or it might track your, your consumption behaviors. But this year in New York City, um, there's a company called Titan that got into some trouble because they had done a deal with the transportation department and put beacons across a stretch of Broadway, lots and lots and lots of beacons. Now, we don't know if they were active or what exactly they were doing with those beacons, but the reality is that they could surreptitiously track users um, and interact with users. And, you know, I think that's something to, to consider going forward. Um, I, I see it as more promise than problematic at the moment. But In case you're just joining us, that's the voice of Amy Webb. She is the CEO of Web Media Group. It's a digital strategy consulting firm, and we're talking about future tech over the next five to ten years, maybe a little beyond that, what's likely to be big next year, and, of course, taking your calls at 800-433-8850. What tech trends do you think will fizzle out? You can send email to kojo at wamu.org or shoot us a tweet at Kojo Show. Getting back to the issue of algorithms, it's something that Google and Facebook and others have taken heat for. You say ethics will be big in this area. Can you talk about why this is so sensitive and what companies need to do? Sure. So, an alg- so again, an algorithm is a process, um, and that process is you know, a mathematical process. But there are human decisions that go into which algorithm to select, which data to process in that algorithm. Um, there are lots and lots of questions about how that algorithm works and when and, and what the outliers are that you want to eliminate. And we've seen some problems with algorithms in the past. Um, there's a you know, well-known instance on Amazon. There was a book about a fly. It was a scientific book uh, that one day shot up to more than or $2 million uh, dollars for sale. This is a book that should not have obviously retailed for that much, but there was an algorithmic glitch that caused the amount of money to to look like it was pretty astronomical. You know, that's an interesting case. They're real debilitating cases, though. Um, So you're saying I wasted my $2 million? Koja, what were you thinking? (laughs) I wonder I'm broke, but go ahead. Um, But there there, there were some documented cases where, uh, you know, some people, a lot of people got denied bank accounts because of an algorithmic error. And and the you know um, and we we see more and more of these cases. There are also instances uh, on content websites, so journalism news sites. Uh, there was a Terry Schiavo, for those of you who remember that case, mm-hmm. um, a long time ago. There was a there was a, a story about her, and right next to her was an ad. Um, I don't know what the ad was advertising exactly, but it was a picture of Albert Einstein, and it had something to do with IQ. Want your IQ to be higher, and and that was an algorithmic error. So. Um, on, on the one hand, we have these algorithms that are making our lives easier. They're making our processes more efficient. They are allowing us to do bigger, better work, to do smarter work. On the flip side of that, you know, we can't just relegate, we can't relegate everything to an algorithm. We have to make smarter decisions, and we, we have to be vigilant about how we're doing that. Computers and devices that think like us will be a big trend. You say the smart virtual personal assistant is going to be big. Now, for someone who's tried in vain to get Siri to correctly initiate a call to someone in their address book or look something up, it seems there will be some skepticism. So tell us, how are these applications evolving? Um, Kojo, if you can't get Siri to work and you've got such a beautiful uh, beautiful diction, I don't, I don't know who, who can. We've all had the same problem. <laughs> yeah, we do. Uh, we've all had the same problem. So... Uh, one of the the really compelling and exciting um, trends that we're looking at going into next year are these. Uh, it's sort of the marriage of smart algorithms and our own personal information, which we are feeding into social networks and into our mobile devices. What's happening is um, through machine learning and some uh, s- semantic technology, these algorithms are are learning about us and they're um, looking at the, the language and they're making inferences. So there were several apps that were very briefly on the market. Um, one of them was called Emu, and uh, if you had it, in my, in my case, my sister had it, uh, you know, I could ask her, do you want to go see a movie? Um, and, and just text her, like you would text somebody using WhatsApp or, or just your text messaging service. The difference here is that it would 
immediately go into surveillance mode. And I'm, I'm using surveillance in a good way, the way that my assistant might surveil um, my calendar. But, but it would look at my calendar. It would look at my address book. It would look at my sister's calendar. It would geolocate us and know where we are. It would look at the schedule of what's playing. Um, and suddenly it would start feeding us information. So you're, if you both want to go see a movie, you're both free Friday night at 6 o'clock. These are the things within a two-mile radius that are playing. These are the shows. Here's a preview. Um, that you can watch while you're having this conversation. If you want to have dinner afterwards, these are the places that have, uh, you know, through open table that have reservations that are available. Um, you, you want me to book it for you. And, and literally all of that would happen um, with, with me typing nothing more than, do, do you want to go see a movie? And my sister responding, yes. So you don't have to go to open table yourself. Your no, all of that. So, so personal assistant will do that for you. It will. Now, with the caveat that um, so the, this particular app was on the market for just a few weeks, Google acquired it. There was another one called Donna, uh, which had slightly limited, more limited functionality, but, but sort of did a lot of the same thing. Yahoo acquired it. There was another one called Q. Apple acquired it in this past year. So, so um, in the past, these smart virtual personal assistants were sort of standalone applications, but we're going to see them built into a bunch of the uh, products and the services that we're already using. We're going to see a lot of that starting to happen in, in 2015. And to give you a quick example, Google just quietly unveiled something for folks who use uh, Google phones. Um, if you park your car, Google is tracking because it's, it's got some of this technology running in the background. It knows that you were in a car. It knows how fast you were driving. It knows that your car has stopped because it's using the accelerometer. Um, And it, it marks that as a place where you parked the car so that if you now go off, this just happened. My, my, my father-in-law um, noticed this on his phone the other day. And, and you know, um, you know it, it, we all lose our cars, right? So this is a, a smart service in the background that will mark and then import that location into your map, you know, on the phone so that you, you can never lose your car again, which is unbelievable, right? It's the nightmare I have, I think, every single night. I lose my car someplace. <laughs> well, if you don't want to lose your car, if you want to know exactly what this app does, give us a call, 800-433-8850. Is there a device or app that you wish existed? 800-433-8850. You can send email to kojo at wmu.org or go to our website, kojoshow.org, ask a question or make a comment there. Wearables, big, and will be a major force next year and beyond. What are you watching there? Um, so wearables are not necessarily a new trend. We've had Fitbits and watches. And actually, Mike, you know, we're, we're tracking almost 300 different kinds of wearable devices going into next year. The wearables that I think are most compelling, uh, we see three areas that are most interesting. So the first one are, are uh, wearables that are designed for kids. And so, you know, it's, and it's interesting because the people de designing these devices Uh, grew up with the first um, iter the, the first set of uh, helicopter parents. It was that generation. And so it's sort of no surprise then that the wearables that these folks are designing enable them to surveil their children uh, from very far away and not just keep track of where they are, <coughs> not just keep track of where they are, but remind them to do things. So these wearable applications, you know, you can sort of nag your kid from uh, if you're on a business trip somewhere, you can still remind them to do their homework because there's a watch that, that kids can wear that will send you their location. You can set a geofence so that if they cross over into some neighborhood that you don't want them to be in or they're grounded and they're not supposed to leave the yard, you'll know. <laughs> um, but, you know, in the process, you can also remind them that they should be doing their homework. So uh, one of the, the biggest areas of opportunity going into next year are wearables for children. Another key area are uh, something that are called, they're called neuroenhancers, and I actually brought one of them into the studio, and uh, Kojo had, had it on earlier. Um, so and I'm putting it on again. <laughs> so these are headbands, and the headbands uh, measure and your EEG, um, the, the, the activity in your brain. And so Kojo's wearing uh, one of the headbands. This is called... Registering nothing right now. <laughs> <laughs> this is a melon. Um, and in, in Kojo's case, the, the waves are off the charts because Kojo is <laughs> extremely smart. But it's measuring the, um, the it's measuring a bunch of, of uh, activity in your brain, but for a specific purpose. So in the case of the melon, it's trying to help you understand when you're more likely to be productive. 
uh, and when you know if you're if you're working on a really hard project and you're just not getting anywhere, it could be that your brain has literally started to shut off. And we, we this is something we say all the time, but this is a way this is a window into our you know into our own heads to help us sort of see that maybe now is a good time to take a break. Um, there are a few other headbands that are coming to market that uh, are more about helping enhance your your state of being so if you're somebody who used to or who, who comes home from work and you have a glass of wine to relax you can save the calories put on one of these headbands program it for relaxation and by the time you walk in your door you'll be relaxed uh, or conversely if you need some more energy uh, you can set the headband to sort of help boost your energy how does it do that <laughs> how does it do that uh, using some Brain proprietary waves. technology i think um you know it, it's a uh, you know uh, it turns out that, that a lot of this technology is, is adapted from what we've seen researchers use and hospitals use. So, I think uh, I'm getting a call from a wine manufacturer who's objecting <laughs> to this right now. But let's go to John in Fairfax, Virginia, and see what John has to say. John, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hello. I'm glad to be speaking with your guest. Uh, it seems to me that you're saying that some of this stuff is not coming out until next year, but my experience with just having bought a, uh, a Galaxy tablet, that it has a plethora of, of uh, apps that are automatically running in the background. If you use any of them, uh, it automatically gives, you, gives permission for them to use a huge amount of information from all of your other uh, information anywhere on the Internet. And it can combine that in you know, unlimited ways to profile you and and uh, offer other insight both to you and to the vendors who sold that software. Uh, as far as the medical applications, uh, telemetry has been used for some time and not very securely. Uh, so a lot of hospitals are rushing to try to protect their telemetry and uh, their patients because that information is often not well encrypted and protected. Amy Webb is also very strong on security, which we'll be discussing later on the broadcast, but you may want to respond to John right now. Sure. So those are two great points, John. So I'll take the first one um, that you made first, and then I can talk about wireless body area networks. Um, so if you're using Android, Android, uh, and, and you may not even realize that that's the operating system that's running your phone, but um, this is a this is a product from Google, and Google has integrated all of it, its suite of various tools from Google Now, um, which which uh, John accurately described as as um, a system that's pulling information from your online profiles and from elsewhere uh, to your calendar, to your you know chats, um, and it's helping making you know it's, it's making some inferences and basically helping you have a more productive day. So. We started to see now roll out uh, at the beginning of this year, not just for Android, but also for iOS devices. So that's Apple. Um, but we're going to see, um, you know, you, you basically haven't seen anything yet. So if that is that, so if that's something that delights and excites you, 2015 is going to be a great year. If that's something uh, that that makes you nervous, then I think we're going to address that towards the end of the Yes, <laughs> end we'll of the show. be addressing it later. We have to take a short break right now when we come back. If you've called, we'll get to your calls if you'd like to. The number is 800-433-8850. You can send email to kojo at wamu.org. It's Tech Tuesday, Future Tech. I'm Kojo Nam.
It's Tech Tuesday, and we're talking with Amy Webb about technology of the future. She's the CEO of Web Media Group, which is a digital strategy consulting firm. Mind control devices, devices controlled by the mind are not far off. This sounds like the stuff of science fiction, mind-controlled helicopters? So there are a number of, of uh, products that are and, and research projects that are in development right now. One of the breakthroughs this past year um, was that there were some researchers that, uh, you know, put very strange-looking devices on two people's heads. And uh, what was sort of fascinating was that one of those people in the study was able to move the other person's hand and... Uh, you know, and the other person had sort of lost control over <laughs> over that hand. So, yeah, I mean, um, and, and this is stuff that we hear about in the movies and we see all the time. But the fact is that, you know, we are getting closer and closer to um, seeing some of these products come to market and seeing them being used in new and interesting ways. Some interesting advances in healthcare will take the form of wearable devices. Can you talk about that? Sure. So we're, you know, most people are familiar with Fitbits, uh, which yep. are devices that are sort of enhanced pedometers. There are other devices that are either coming to the healthcare market or, uh, um, you know, or just now starting to launch. And, and these are um, different tools to help doctors monitor a patient's condition without forcing them to stay in a hospital for a long time. And in some cases, they're capsules that are actually tiny little cameras or other things that live in your body for a while or um, different wearable devices that track your vitals and other, other things. And basically what happens then is when you have these devices on or in you, you become a wire, a, 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 your body itself becomes a sort of wireless network, a wireless body area network. And uh, data, you know, from your body is, is being collected and sent to a central hub. And that hub is then uh, parsing that data back out to your physician or to a team of people who monitor you. Um, and, and it's a really great benefit for patients who otherwise would be sort of shackled to a hospital or have to go there, you know, a few times a day. Now this brings us back to John's question. Yes. It sounds like a privacy nightmare, sending a lot of very personal, unencrypted information across the Internet. How can that be addressed? So security uh, and encryption are definitely key areas that, you know, I think everybody is watching, not just us, going into next year. I will say this, you know, is it possible that uh, one of the devices that you're wearing uh, could potentially be hacked? Is it possible that your data could be compromised? Yes, but it's highly improbable. And the way that I get through the day um, is is by thinking that just about everything that I own can be hacked, because anything that you plug into a wall can be hacked. Um, but there's, there's very little benefit to a hacker, you know, hacking hacking me. Um, and, and, and it's the same for most people. So you know, encryption is difficult. There are also some problems with encryption. Uh, the more difficult you make, um, it, you make it to, uh, to, to, to take that sensitive data, the more, the, the more that you encrypt it, the harder it is to use. And so you actually lose a lot of functionality, even though it's obviously a benefit to encrypting. Um, so there's a lot to wrestle with going forward. Well, you're lucky. You're not sitting on a $2 million Amazon book like I am, so <laughs> I have something to protect. Security and privacy are always hot topics, and that's an area you're particularly interested in. We saw massive hacking of very big organizations in the past couple of years. Well, heck, in the past couple of weeks. So <laughs> what will we see in 2015 and beyond? What's coming to the realm of security? So... In our great zeal and enthusiasm for technology and our our fear of missing out, our FOMO, um, you know, we're seeing people and also there's some, you know, some other interesting things happening. Um, suddenly it's cool again to wear a bunch of stuff on your belt, you know, if you're a guy. Uh, that certainly wasn't the case <laughs> you know, the past couple of years. Um, and these devices, relatively speaking, have come down in price enough so that it's not just early adopters or very wealthy people who can afford them. So we have this convergence of, of sort of things happening. And as a result, we're seeing widespread adoption and desire to own all of these devices. What's happened is that we've forgotten that, you know, uh, our data is inextricably linked to these devices. It's what makes them work. And, uh, you know, it's interesting to me, um, gosh, when I, I lived in Japan several years ago and online shopping was just starting to happen. And I remember everybody talking about, like, why would we ever put our credit card number 
why would what I, why would I ever put my name and my credit card number and my address onto this website? You know, that's crazy. And today, we don't even think twice. You know, we don't think twice about who we're giving our credit card information to, you know, how, what information may or may not be shared from our devices. Nobody asks a question when they go to purchase something. Is my data being encrypted? And if so, how? And do I have a key? Is there a three-factor authentic? You know, none of those questions come up. And I, I think that it's less of a, uh, you know, less ignorance and more willful, willful ignorance um, because suddenly the, it's a lot harder to use all these devices if, if we have those conversations. That said... Um, there are companies that are now working uh, really hard on different types of authentication, different types of encryption, uh, not just to shore up their corporate data, but also to make sure that um, consumers who are definitely increasingly more concerned about their privacy feel more at ease using these devices. Okay, we'll get back to security, but on to the phones again. Here's Carol in Baltimore, Maryland. Carol, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Oh, thank you. I love your show, Kojo. Thank you. Um, I have a question. You said um, a bit ago that uh, there's this headband that can make you relax. How do you buy it? <laughs> uh, you can't right now. Um, oh. There are, but 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 um, there are three headbands that are coming to market. Um, and if you look on the on the the Kojo Show's website, um, they're they're all listed there in the report that's on the site. And uh, over the next year, they'll start coming to market. So I would start checking back in the spring and summer. Um, the, the melon headband will probably be the first one to hit, and then we'll, we'll see the other ones follow. We got a tweet, Carol, from someone called Elgato, who said, Just let me opt out of my headband telling my health insurance app how much wine I've had when my headband won't let me relax. That's a great so, – so that's a really great point. And so here's, here's one challenge. Um, so Fitbit data was recently used in a court of law. Um, and I don't know exactly what the circumstances were, but the, the sort of thing that I thought was interesting was that um, a third party could have access to my, my personal Fitbit data. And um, again, not to sort of go back into the privacy realm, but, uh, but that's actually a really good thing to be thinking about. And it's a constant balance we have to strike. How much do we want to improve our lives using this technology? And how much are we thinking about what's on the other end of the data that we're sharing? Well, Elgato certainly made me think about some other things. Here's Will in Washington, D.C. Will, your turn. Hi, Kojo. Thanks for having me. Um, just in terms of wearable devices and, you know, our brains interacting with, uh, you know, replacements, uh, hands or, or legs and the more dexterity we have, how far off are we from, you know, a primitive use of a hard drive in the brain and, you know, storing some kind of memory or being able to collect some kind of memory is that 10 years away? Is, is that somewhere on the horizon? Is that even, uh, have you heard of anything like that? Amy? So, yes, I know a lot of people that are working, not a lot, I know a few people who are working on a sort of exobrain structure. Um, and if you, if you think about our brain within the context of a sort of hard drive, um, where it has to store, hard drives store the operations, how, how the machine works, but it also stores the... Uh, content that we're creating, you know, our, a lot of people equate um, hard drives to our brains. Uh, we're not running out of brain space. Most people aren't using enough of their brains for, to really warrant that as a real concern. Um, but the the concept of an exobrain is definitely something that's being looked at in a lot of places. Um, be, you know, and again, it, it comes back to how can we be more efficient? How can we be more elite thinking? Um, how can we combine our our thought processes with other things? How can we very, very quickly learn new skills without having to sit and sort of study and, and practice? All of those things are definitely being looked at. I don't think we'll see any um, see anything happen in the next several years. That's more longer term, I, you know, um, but, but it is something that's being looked at. Thank you for your call. Here now is Wayne in Warrington, Virginia. Wayne, your turn. Thank you. Yes, um, Listening to your conversation, uh, it just uh, begs a couple questions to me. Um, if you combine the technology of which you're speaking with something like facial recognition software, does that make anonymity a thing of the past? And another further question is, um, does that um, not really equate to uh, everyone living lives in the public sphere? Amy? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. Um, 
So I'll unpack it a little bit. So one of the uh, exciting things that we're tracking next year or for next year are facial recognition algorithms and image recognition technology um, that have become very powerful. So uh, a couple of years ago, Facebook bought a company called Face.com, and this was the company that uh, looks at images, has very powerful algorithms, and was able to not just um, tell that you know, if somebody uploads, a, Kojo, if you upload a photo of yourself, um, not just that it's you, but if you gain weight or you lose weight or you're younger, you know, whatever, it, it sort of is able to still track that that is you in the image. Um, that only works because we've uploaded so many photos and we are uh, willfully, you know, and, and dutifully tagging them all the time. And so, uh, you know, we've enabled a lot of this technology to work. The technologies can be very, very effective. So there, if you combine this image recognition with some new um, smart cameras that are connected to each other, um, you know, cameras can now, uh, University of Washington uh, has a study that, 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 you know, placing cameras around a, a central area, they can lock onto a person and using their facial features, uh, find them in a crowd and then continue to follow them from place to place. And the camera sort of hand that signal off from camera to camera to camera. This may not actually seem super exciting because it, it actually mirrors something we see a lot on CSI and NCIS and shows like that, but it's never actually existed before, and, and that's what we're moving towards. Now, if that's the kind of thing that concerns you, um, and if anonymity is something that you value, then the best way to protect against that is to not post photos of yourself. You know, the, the fewer photos that there are, um, the harder it is for these tools to work. Too late. Um <laughs> However, there may be <clears throat> some light on the horizon. Ephemeral networks. We've all heard of Snapchat, but remind us what that's all about. One of the f interesting things that we saw really take off this year were ephemeral networks, um, allowing people to post photos or post text that would disappear. Uh, so disappearing content was sort of a big thing. I think that part of the reason disappearing content took on uh, took off didn't just have to do with the reason that everybody sort of thinks of why you would want a photo or something else to disappear, but because and that reason <laughs> is because we all want to be able to remove things that we don't like from the sphere of other people's observations. And you put that so much better than <laughs> what I was going to say. But you're, yes, you are absolutely right. Um, I actually think that that the networks also took off because we're just surrounded by too much content. And there's something very sort of comforting about knowing that if I post something to a, an ephemeral network, um, you know, I'm going to look at it and then it just disappears. I don't have to physically push the delete button. And, and as crazy as that sounds for a lot of people, they've sort of become unwitting digital pack rats where they are just saving stuff uh, because it's hard to push delete. So I think that's one of the reasons that, that those networks took off. One of the things we're starting to notice is that ephemerality is being built into a lot of different services and tools and applications. Uh, Facebook has been toying with a, a way for you to post, to, to schedule a post and then have it automatically delete, um, you know, within a certain amount of time. You know, now there are some problems with that. Obviously, it's a good way to harass people temporarily and have no you know, trace of that left. Uh, theoretically, there's always a trace left. Um, but I also think it's a, gosh, you know, having some self-destructing emails would clear up my inbox and, and I think be great for me. So, uh, and, I, and I think that a lot of these application um, manufacturers and, and people working in this space understand that. We all want to feel that we can disappear if we want to at yeah. some particular time. Hopefully the ephemeral can help us to do that. But we've got to take a short break. We won't be disappearing for long. We'll be right back. So if you've called, stay on the line. We will get to your calls. You can still call at 800-433-8850. What tech trends do you predict will be big in 2015? Shoot us an email to kojo at wamu.org or a tweet at Kojo Show using the hashtag TechTuesday. I'm Kojo Nandi. Coming up at one, remembering those lost in 2014 from the irreverent queen of stand-up to D.C.'s own mayor for life, a walk through the year's obituaries. Today at one on the Kojo Nandi Show on WAMU 88.5 and streaming at kojoshow.org.
Welcome back. Our Tech Tuesday guest is Amy Webb. She is the CEO of Web Media Group. It's, it's a digital strategy consulting firm. We're talking about future tech, future technology, and we were talking about security and privacy. Speaking of which, you posted an article on Slate that sparked quite a bit of discussion. Can you tell us about what you wrote and why it seems to have touched a nerve? Well, it touched a nerve twice. Uh, two years ago, at the end of 2013, um, I wrote a story about why my husband and I uh, don't post any photos of our daughter online and encouraged uh, parents to think a little bit uh, more carefully about what photos they were posting. Um, you know, it's it's more and more difficult for for us to, to have any sense of real of being anonymous. It's it's harder and harder. And so this is not me assuming that someday my daughter's going to be a criminal. It's nothing like that. Um, but it is giving her a, a sort of sense of, uh, you know, of, of having some control over herself. And so I sort of explained in the story uh, a lot of examples of people posting photos of their children. Uh, and I thought, you know, what, what ultimately is happening with those photos, who's accessing them, who's using them, and in what ways. Um, that story uh, upset a lot of people, and um, because a lot of people love to post photos of because their children. they do, you know, and and uh, it turns out that I had unwittingly um, uh, uploaded a photo of my daughter to an old mobile me site uh, without realizing that it was there. Hackers found it, of course, uh, published it, um, you know. But but for for a variety of reasons, again, I think this comes back to the the idea that we're all very excited about technology. I am extremely excited and, and looking forward to all that's to come. But that excitement doesn't, you know, tempered is the wrong word. That excitement needs to be tempered, maybe. Um, By the sober reality that if you post a picture of your child outside of your house with the address of the house showing <laughs> on it and add the information that you're about to go on vacation, sure. then there are potential you know, predators online who can you know, take advantage of that. Yeah, it's partially that, but it's also partially just, um, yeah, that's, that's an old concern. So it's part, part, partly that, but partly um, I want my daughter to have control of her, yeah, own, that's important. her own life going forward. And, and it's just really difficult that the more content that you post, the more because difficult that Because what you're doing becomes. is putting your children in the public arena, mm -hmm. regardless of their own desires. And at some point, they may have not, they may have been, as they get older, not desired to be in the public arena. Absolutely. I mean, one has to be very careful about it. Something I have always been carefully careful about when talking either on radio or on television, because if you tell people about all the wonderful things your children have achieved and you don't tell them that your child has become a criminal, then they'll say, you know, you're only giving them the information they want to hear. So children, I guess, should have some degree of control over their privacy. You know, it's that, and it's also that, again, we don't, we don't control those data repositories and we don't know ultimately what's happening or what could happen or, you know, we just, we don't know. Um, and so from my point of view, it's better to err on the side of, of caution. And I, you know, I'm somebody who's very, obviously very excited about all this, but um, that story touched off a pretty big national conversation <laughs> twice. Uh, it was, for some reason, uh, people started talking about it again at the end of last month and again, touched off another big wave of, uh, of conversation uh, you know, and I, I won't retract what I said or, or back down from it. And, and that is that I think if you're a parent who values um, your child's future um, access to privacy, uh, and, if, and if you, if you, you know, think before you post. Think before you post, and and that that's not just you know birthday photos of your kid, um, but that's you know zany videos of them, uh, whatever current dollar value you place on that YouTube video is probably going to be far outweighed by um, the potential for there to be a problem going forward. On now to Nikki in Fairfax, Virginia. Nikki, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Thank you for having me. Uh, an interesting show. Many years ago, I heard that uh, they will put a chips on the, on, the, on the bottom of the liquid, the milk or the juice, and then I will have the same thing in my wallet when that milk or liquid goes low, and then it will beep on my wallet. And then I'll go to the store. When I see, when I go to the aisle, it'll beep. This is what you need uh, at home. Is this is low? So I don't know. Is this is true, or uh, 
many years ago that they uh, haven't seen this this technology. Amy? So you might be talking about RFID chips. And um, <laughs> so after I've just told everybody that I don't post photo of my kid online, uh, post photos of my kid online, I did have a pretty lengthy argument with my husband about chipping our child. Um, I wanted to chip her and uh, to inject her with an RFID chip so that uh, we could track her and, you know, do, I don't know. I got overruled. It was probably the right decision at the time. <laughs> but uh, but there are people who are chipping themselves. And, you know, there's a whole sort of um, quantified self movement where people really uh, investigate themselves and track all kinds of data in order to make inferences and live a healthy, better life. Um, so So that is definitely happening. Um, I have not chipped myself. I know a guy who, who chipped his hands. Uh, and you can program those chips theoretically to do everything from, you know, track your health to function as a sort of credit card. Um, I don't know that that technology is necessarily ready for prime time. Jim, in Washington, D.C., wants to chide you about what you thought about doing to your child. Jim, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hey, Kojo. Hey, Jim. Um, I just, you sounded, uh, your guest, I'm sorry, but you sound a little contradictive to me. I mean, you in one, one sentence you said you want your daughter to live her life, and in another sentence you want to uh, chip her or, you know, give her some sort of wearable so you can no. uh, basically, mic, you know. It's the grounded versus the helicopter, but go ahead. <laughs> uh, well, it, it just doesn't, it, it sounds like, to me, when I raise my children, I'd like to trust that I'm doing a good job and, you know, instill that human aspect of it, of trusting your child, which does go a long way. And it seems like you're extracting that. And I'm a little concerned about the damage that may do in the future. You don't want your child exposed to the virtual world, but you don't want her wandering around the neighborhood where you don't know where she is either. Yeah, that's a total, that's a absolutely, um, that's a good point, and I agree. Um, on the one hand, I'm saying I, I don't want photos of my child, and on the other hand, I'm saying I, I want to chip her. So there's a difference, be- the, the difference there um, is that I, I, you know, I'm a concerned mother. I've got one kid. I, I had my child later in life, and I, I, there's a certain amount of paranoia that I have that I think is probably common among um, women in, in the same situation. Uh I don't want other people to have access to her data, but absolutely I want to know everything that I can possibly know about her at all times. So I realize that's a, that's a contradiction. Thank you very much for your call, Jim. Continuous partial attention. Apparently we are all doing it already, but what is it? Yeah, so, um, you know, we have mobile phones, we've got tablets, um, we have access to screens at all time. And uh, as a result of that, we're sort of not paying any uh, consistent attention. I'm not even doing it at the moment, actually. I'm looking for, uh, for some She's notes. Yeah. I'm multitasking. I'm not multitasking. I'm, I'm sort of continuous, uh, and I'm not going to find it. I was looking continuous for the name. Continuous partial attention. I was looking for the, the name of the woman who coined that term, and she was a researcher at, uh, her name is Linda, uh, a researcher at, at Microsoft and, and some other places. And basically she said, you know, we've entered a phase where um, multitasking is where we are, are putting effort in to multiple tasks at once and we're able to accomplish a lot of different things. Continual partial attention is where we're sort of not really paying 100% of our attention to anything, uh, splitting and dividing our attention among the person that we're having dinner with and our mobile phone and and a few other things. And as a result of that, um, you know, we're not really fully plugged into any one person or any one thing. Now, we can say that that's a good or a bad thing. What I would advocate going into next year is thinking, you know, for those people who are in business or in government or or in situations where you want to capture people's attention, figure out a way to leverage what we know is becoming this uh, this kind of behavior, um, which is which is only growing, not shrinking. So if you're only paying partial attention, is there a way that you can captivate somebody partially? And if so, how? Heads-up technology. For those who've seen Google Glass, they may have an idea, but can you explain this and how it will be useful in cars and elsewhere? Uh, so, so 
the neat thing about how technology has evolved is that we don't have to actively search for information anymore. It can be delivered to us at all times. So uh, Google Glass, if you've seen anybody wearing them, it looks kind of like a strange headband that you wear over your forehead with a little teeny tiny rectangular, didn't bring mine in today, little teeny tiny rectangular piece that goes over the eye. And it, it can feed you information um, about, you know, what you're looking at, but it's still a pretty manual process. You have to ask the device to give you that information. So the next evolution are are wearable devices and screens, um, either that you place over your eyes or in your eyes. We've seen some contact lens prototypes that feed that information to you continually. So if I were, you know, come going to a, a business meeting, um, rather than me furiously looking on my mobile phone to remember somebody's name, um, the, whatever device I was wearing would automatically recognize those people um, because it knows where we're at, you know, and, and start to feed me information. What were the, this person's, you know, five last tweets? Where are they working right now? Information from their LinkedIn profile, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so, in, in it, and and that, you know. It, all of the technology that I've been talking about today uh, sort of goes into making that happen from image recognition to, to the way that the you know, search is changing. Um, so, so, you know, we're seeing some of that. We're seeing heads up devices, obviously, in cars that not, don't just show you, you know, lane departure, but, but show you lot, much more valuable information. Um, you know, and, and heads up displays can be incredibly powerful, useful tools. Here now is Courtney in Washington, D.C. Courtney, your turn. Um, thank you so much for this opportunity to ask your question because I think that the security implications haven't been sufficiently addressed. And I was wondering to what extent the legal frameworks exist um, in order to regulate how um, government can get access to that data that's being produced as well as how companies can share it. And I think this takes on added dimensions with respect to data retention policies and, of course, surveillance. And I, you know, I think especially one of the dimensions that you missed in talking about your child is her ability to control whether or not she wants to be part of the network society and, and you know, how her selfhood is you know, developed and what happens in 20 years when all of that data is developed. Who has access to it? Well, the legal framework is, I guess, where it is, is behind the curve at this mm-hmm. point, and it's going to have to play catch up. Our laws, so we've, we've gotten to a point where our technology is developing faster than a lot of the social cons- constructs and legal frameworks and other, other things that we have, um, you know, and there's definitely some scholars and some lawyers who are, a lot of them, you know, who are, who are way on, you know, way ahead of things and they're, they're, they're researching and they, they understand what's happening. Um, but obviously that requires uh, action, you know, with with the folks you know who who make the laws and and that's going along kind of slowly. Um, on the other hand, there's an argument to be made for less regulation. Um, you know, I'm not a legal scholar. Uh, I'm somebody who observes behavior. So, but those will definitely be uh, those will definitely be questions going in into next year. And if you are somebody who works in government or you are somebody who works in law. Um, you know, I, I can't think of a profession really where these trends don't impact. Uh, and these are absolutely conversations that need to be had. And not just um, what data can be collected and how, but at what cost and um, constitutionally what makes sense and ethically what makes sense. I mean, these are all great conversations to, to start having, you know, this, year, this, this coming year. Thank you for your call. How do you determine which trends will stick and which are likely to fizzle? So... We see a huge number of applications and gadgets, and people constantly send us prototypes and ideas and pitches for things. Um, in order to really gain our attention, we have something called a future uh, a product. Uh, product's a weird word. A tool that we we use internally called a future print, and the future print is a is a tool that um, pressure tests any idea. It looks at the trend and it it um, it asks a bunch of very difficult questions and. For us, it's it's not just does the technology work, but but is it either leveraging consumer behavior or is it going to leverage what we know will be consumer behavior, and does it take into account disruption happening in other places? So, um, that that's how we 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 use this tool, um, the Future Print, in order to sort of figure out what's what's going to stick, and um, we have been right I, that the tool has been has predicted accurately everything but one trend over the past several years, and that one trend was NFC. 
near field communications technology, um, I was a little, it was, we were a little early on that. We talked about the law and about legislation, but the regulatory side, the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, will be taking a larger role in regulating the Internet in the future? Um, yeah, now, uh, I should caveat that by saying I haven't talked to anybody who has gone on the record saying that that's what they're going to be doing. But if you look at uh, what they've been saying over the past couple of months, that it would indicate that that's the direction they're moving in. You know, the FTC hasn't been... Um, you got yeah, about the, 30 seconds. The FCC has been everybody's sort of ex favorite agency to talk about. Um, the FTC has done an amazing job of going after hackers and, and investigating what's happening in, in cyberspace. Um, it's headed by some very smart women, and I am absolutely excited to see what they're going to do going into 2015. Amy Webb, she is the CEO of Web Media Group, a digital strategy consulting firm. You've heard it. Prepare for your own future tech. Amy, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much, Kojo. Thank you all for listening. I'm Kojo Namdi. Coming up tomorrow on the Kojo Nam, the show Natural Profits, the transformation of a handful of niche health food stores in the 60s into today's multi-billion dollar natural foods industry. Then at one, the history of the cubicle, how a high-end design for a flexible office space evolved into the workspace we love to hate. The Kojo Nam, the show noon till two tomorrow on WAMU 88.5 and streaming at kojoshow.org. WAMU 88.5 is your listener-supported NPR news station in the greater Washington, D.C. region. You can support the Kojo Namdi Show and all the regional coverage you value by becoming a member today. Click the Donate button at WAMU.org and thanks.